The comfort of the shade is brief and cold, the air dappled with gold beyond the leafy border where the healthy ones play, their faces upturned to the sun, feet bare and unfettered, no cares, not one, past the filling of time that I squander, resting, hiding in the long low limbs of my tree, my shroud, making night, waiting for that perfect cloud to step into the light. Every life has its seasons with some magic we'll get through. Hippie witch has her reasons and she's sharing them with you. Hippie witch season five. Hello! Thanks for joining me for episode 520 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe, and I am the groovy creatrix behind Kick-Ass Witch, putting the K in magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit, and you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com where you will also find the show notes for this episode, which will include links to our very cool, cool guest, an artist, Joanna Valente. This is a woman I have admired from afar for a very long time. I just find her interesting. I follow her on Twitter. I asked her to come on the show. I saw she had a new poetry book out called A Love Story, And it's so not what the title makes it sound like it is. (laughs) I'm going to let her tell you what a love story is about, but it's pretty shocking. And this is also why I wanted to have her on the show, because this is what artists do. This is what artists do. And we live in a time now where it's actually extra challenging to be an artist and to speak your mind, and to put unpopular opinions out there, or to explore things that might be controversial in some ways. And the reason that I read that little poem to you at the beginning of this episode is because I have been an artist my whole life, just an artsy, rambling, creative person making all the things. And that poem was part of a coloring book for grown-ups I did. Will Work for Food, a coloring book for grown-ups. I published it in 2006 and got it in to some really neat shops here in Los Angeles. And I sold it online through my website. I sold it at Melrose Trading Post. I was proud of it <laughs> at the time. And... This was in my mid-30s when I was just angry. I was angry, angry, angry about what it felt like to be a woman. I was angry about what I was beginning to see was my diminishing superpower. My sexiness, my beauty was starting to go away. I had to work harder to turn heads and I knew that that was not going to get better. And so I was experiencing those first little waves of a loss of power. I was angry about it. I was angry that culture and society made me think that was all I was worth. And I was really observant of marketing at that time. 
So a lot of what's in will work for food is just like these angry, like wah, swinging around, <laughs> angry things, but then also exploring themes of depression. I had a long history of depression, and at that point, I was kind of angry about that too because it just felt like so much wasted time. That's what the poem that I read to you specifically was about. But this is not a project now that I look at and feel proud of in the same way I did when I created it. Back in the day, if I made something, if I managed to pull off an illustration and it looked the way it looked in my mind, I was just like, everyone must see this. Oh my gosh. I was just constantly amazed. <laughs> wow, I made a thing. And I really didn't have a good edit button. I was just like, I made a thing and I'd be so proud of it. So if it was a song, I would release it. If it was a poem, I would put it in Will Work for Food, a coloring book for grownups. Before that, I had one called Too Cool for School. They'd still look really cool. I like my illustration style. It's just really bare bones, stripped down, kind of like a black and white tattoo style. I still like that. I still like to draw that way and kind of like push around the white space with the black Sharpie. I always work in black Sharpie when I'm doing that. And I still dig that. But also some of it is just so embarrassing. It's just embarrassing because I put out things that I don't think now when I look at them are quality that were worthy of publishing. Some of it is because it's pretentious. Some of it was just because I just like threw everything in the kitchen sink into a project and there wasn't like a strong theme. This one actually, I think, has a pretty strong through line of just angry mid-30s lady <laughs> raging at marketing and the way it makes women feel at the time. You know, the times have changed too. But I bring it up now to say also like some of what makes me uncomfortable there, a perfect example of this comes up in this interview with Joanna, and her name is Joanna. This is the Joanna show, two Joannas. <laughs> I asked her during the interview, you know, have you ever made anything that you find embarrassing or you just want to go take it down? I'm actually going to take down this coloring book because it doesn't represent who I am and I don't want someone to find it today, but mostly it's just because I was pretentious. But I shared during the interview that, you know, there's one thing in here that actually does bother me and I feel it's not appropriate to have out there anymore. But then I didn't say what that was. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get out up ahead of that <laughs> before y'all hear that part of the interview because I don't want you to think it's, I don't know, you might think this is a horrible thing, but let's be specific about what the horrible thing is. And that is an illustration that I did of Paris Hilton. It's undeniably Paris Hilton. It's her head on like a Barbie doll body. And there's like a lot of dollar signs floating around and she's lifting up her skirt. And instead of genitalia, there is like a coin slot where you put like quarters in and then next to her head, it says the best things in life are free. This is not an uncommon thing that cartoonists do. And this was going along with, what other poems? There were other poems kind of, oh, they're just so embarrassing. I was going <laughs> to, 
<laughs> give you a sense of like what I was trying to get at. But this is actually embarrassing to me. There's one where there's a girl naked straddling the world. Like she's straddling the world like it's like a... What are those balls when you're a kid? They look like exercise balls, but they would have a handle and you could like bounce around on them. <laughs> There's a naked lady with torpedo boobies looking fabulous. And she's thinking, it's just so gosh darn easy to rule the world. And then on the page opposite that, there's a nerd with her nerd glasses and her sweater and her shirt buttoned to her neck, and she's clutching her beloved copy of Wuthering Heights to her chest, scowling at this lady saying, gee, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so I was just exploring things like that, and one of them was how wealthy people consume and flaunt their consumption in front of us, and... To me, Paris Hilton represented this because back in the day when, what was the show she did with Nicole Richie? Why can't I think of it all of a sudden? The Something Life, The Simple Life. They had one of the very first popular reality TV shows and I think it was just pitched to them. It wasn't even their idea. I know it wasn't Nicole Richie's idea. Maybe it was Paris's idea. But it was really popular at the time, you know, so everybody tuned in and I went to watch this show and I saw this girl, Paris Hilton, she was definitely a girl at the time, just acting like playing up over the top, kind of being like a stuck up brat, dumb blonde kind of character. And what I saw her doing, they were going around to these families' homes and like staying at their homes, that was the reality show. That was the funny part. They would go hang out with these people that were living far more humble lives. And some of the things she said and did enraged me. It enraged me because those families reminded me of my family. And it felt like they were making fun of them. And that those people were being exploited, like they were the punchline. And that upset me. I know not everybody got that message, but that's what it triggered in me. That's how it made me feel. And so Paris Hilton was forever that girl. So I had no problem creating this cartoon. And I loved it. I loved it. I would actually use the image of that to market the book sometimes because it just looks just like her, the face. So I was very proud of that. And... Now, all these years later, you know, she's come out and talked about her experience as a person, as a woman, what, is, what was it like to play this character. I still don't love what she did on that show. But, you know, I've come to see her as a whole person, and this is a violation of my personal value system. It makes me feel shitty that I did that to an actual human being, a person, that I kind of called her out that way, and it's undeniably her. So the thing I was so proud of, that it's undeniably her, is actually the thing that makes me feel bad about it now when I see it. And here is the really funny thing. This is part of Shadow Love Summer Camp because... I think another reason I really hated Paris Hilton is because people would sometimes compare me to her, and that is the last thing I wanted to be. I was skinny, I was blonde, I played up being sexy, but I wanted to be like cool and edgy and at the hip clubs. And when I would get compared to her, it was so 
offensive and triggering to me. <laughs> and I'll make a long story short and say that I was in Silver Lake, which is a very cool part of Los Angeles. It's where the cool kids hang. And I was there alone, and I thought I was dressed, or I think I was with a girlfriend. I thought I was dressed amazing. I thought I looked so cool. And these two women were giving me the hairy eyeball. They were judging me at the way I looked. I wasn't, I didn't know why, but I saw that they were doing that, and then I heard it. One of the ladies, one of the girls under her breath called me Paris Hilton, and I was just like, wah. <laughs> <laughs> completely deflated. I knew enough about shadow work at the time because I had released this this coloring book for grown-ups before coloring books for grown-ups was really a thing. I just want to say that. I am still proud of that. But I, it kind of made me laugh at myself that I was so deflated. I was like, this is hilarious. I am acting out some strange shadow thing here for sure. And then many, 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 many years later, I had a coaching client who had two women that that this person just absolutely adored. And guess who they were? <laughs> Me and Paris Hilton. And I was just like, this is too much. So this is a very shadowy part of my past that I'm not proud of. But I just want to say, because we have an artist on the show, someone who is kind of living that dream of being an artist, being a creative person, moving from project to project, that a lot of us who move through life that way, we're really looking to like capture the energy and the feeling of the moment and express ourselves and be as honest as we can. And if you're on that path, if you're on that journey, your shadows, your immaturity, where you're at in life is going to be reflected in the process. So if you are that person, there's nothing you can do about being that person. It's who you're born to be. It's what you're made to do. It's what you're here to contribute. So you really only have two choices. You can hide and not make anything because you're afraid of cancel culture, or you can kind of step to the edge and embrace the fact that by the nature of what you do, the way you express yourself, it's going to upset some people and sometimes you will be wrong. And when you are the one who's wrong, that's your opportunity to learn and grow. Not to dig your heels in deeper, but to be like, okay, here's my opportunity to grow and learn. It's embarrassing, it's humbling, but I'm here for it. I promise you'll get over it if you take that stance. You'll learn something new and you'll make something better the next time. So that's, that's it. That's my story. That's me getting out ahead of the controversy <laughs> or trying to anyway. I'm sure I've said and done all kinds of offensive things in my lifetime, but I do know for sure I'm a kind person. And when I realize I'm being unkind, it bothers me. It bothers me and I always accept that agitation as an invitation to grow. So that's the one thing I can promise you. I cannot promise you that I will not be offensive, but I can promise you that I'm not trying to be and that you can always tell me if you're kind about it and I will hear what you have to say. So this interview is funny because at the very beginning of it, I'm telling Joanna that I'm a little bit sad to get to know her better 
this way in conversation because I really enjoy the illusion of her as an artist, as this mysterious, romantic stranger. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Our conversation shattered the illusion. But what I got in exchange for that was something much more valuable, and that is a more fully expressed impression of this very real, dynamic, and relatable artist. And now I'm like going through my head thinking, did I call her a she? Did I call they a she? Because we have the pronouns discussion and I've always seen her as a she, but she identifies they. See, I'm having problems with this, but it's not for a lack of trying. Joanna identifies as they, them. I think she gives you like an alternative. You know, she'll be like, look, if you call me she and it's an accident or you're not trying to hurt me in some way, it's fine. But I want to get used to this because I find it very, very awkward. This was not a thing until my 40s. And the neural pathways in this brain are, the grooves are deep. (laughs) It takes a lot of conscious efforts to create a new groove, but I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do it because I want to respect other people. And I think people deserve to be referred to in the way that they choose. I have no problem with that. So that's part of the conversation too. I hope you love this. It was a lot of fun for me. Fingers crossed it will be for you too. Hi, Joanna. Welcome to Hippie Witch. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time now. I have so many questions, but I'm also, I realized in the minutes leading up to this conversation, I'm a little bit sad to burst the bubble of my illusion because (laughs) I know you as this mysterious, glamorous Twitter ghost. You have to... You have this kind of like silent film star quality, or it reminds me back in the day in my early 20s when I fell in love with Anna Snin and I had photographs and I had, I actually had some footage of her on video and books, but it was also a fantasy, if that makes sense. Right, totally. Is that deliberate? Are you doing this on purpose? Not at all, actually, to be honest. If anything, you know, ironically, I, I feel like when I was younger, I felt like I overshared a lot on the internet. And I think as I've gotten older, like I've been guarding my privacy more. And I think for various reasons, of course, I mean, I think some of it is just kind of like, you know, who do I give access to myself? And I mean, I think in person, I'm so like super open. Like I'm one of those people where like, when you meet me, I'm just kind of like an open book. And I tend to be more of like a fast friends with someone, at least from like my side of things. Cause I'm just kind of like, whatever, like if we're going to be friends, like yeah. <laughs> here's the real me kind of thing. So it's kind of funny because on one hand, I feel like it's definitely not intentional in the sense that like everything's up for grabs for me. I think just with the internet in general, like I think, you know, when I started using the internet, like I was on live journal, you know, back in the, uh-huh. the days. And I feel like for me, that was like the best era of the internet because I think people felt less guarded. You weren't really like curating an image. And I think like the longer I've been on 
social media, I kind of have like a lot of weird feelings about it because like it ends up kind of being like an unintentional brand for people, even like for people who like aren't trying to like push a project per se. And I think I try to be aware, I guess, of like how I'm presenting myself in the sense I think lately I'm just kind of like, here's my art and like here's occasional thoughts that I have. But I think I'm just really wary of either misrepresenting myself or maybe overly sharing, especially when it comes to like other people like in my life who may or may not like be on the internet. Like I try to be like cognizant of how that might feel, you know what I mean? Because like I wouldn't want to make anyone oh my uncomfortable. Gosh, I Yes, I feel that. I have kind of a strange relationship with it because I enjoy sharing part of my life, but also it's awful at the same time. So maybe that's, (laughs) I hide a lot or I don't share. I I don't feel like I'm hiding. I don't share a lot because my truth reveals the truth of people I love and care about. And that's awful (laughs) to out them for, you know, like bad behavior or mistakes that they made that impacted me, maybe even in a traumatic way. I'm like, I don't think that's mine to share, even though it's my story. And I know every everybody feels differently about that. But right, right. I came to a place of peace when I realized my loyalty is to them over whatever I would get out of sharing it. So clarity. Clarity's great. <laughs> right. It's a complicated thing. And I don't think there's any fast or easy answers, but I, I think I like have thought about that, especially over the past year with the pandemic and like how we're deciding to live and like present and all of the things. So I think like I tend to err more on the side of caution than I used to. Like when I was like in my twenties, I think I was kind of like the opposite. And I was like, I'm just going to say all the things. And there is a beauty in that, of course, but I think I'm more reserving that for like friends or like my writing rather than social media itself. And I think part of it is also like I deleted Twitter and Facebook like off my phone. So I'm usually actually only on it like during work hours and like just kind of updating it for that purpose. So like, I think the only thing I'm actually really like on more is Instagram, which I think for me feels more like my art diary, basically. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing some of it on Twitter, because that's where I hang out. (laughs) So I feel like I get a little Twitter flavor from you. And then there's another woman I love that it's similar. It's so weird to be like, I really just adore her, but I know nothing about her. (laughs) Right, right. But it's like somehow you get to know someone too. Like, you know what I mean? Like the energy somehow is still there, which is like weird to think about. But I really do believe that we still put our energy out there in like some cyber way. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I was interested in asking you about. I should give you a chance to give us a brief bio, but I know that you're an amazing poet. That's one of the fun things of oh, I'm following this person on social media. They're really inspiring. And then I'm just going to click on this link and you're like, whoa, (laughs) they have this talent. I actually think what you share on Twitter is a talent too. You do these selfies that I find very interesting because they don't feel like they're coming from a place of ego. They don't feel gross. It just feels like it is what it is. Like, I love fashion, right. I love style, and this is what that looks like today is kind of how it feels to me. Right, and that's honestly actually exactly my intention. So I'm, I'm glad that comes off because I think that's another thing that I've always kind of worried about sometimes is like, I don't want people to think I'm like being vain or like just being like, oh, look at me, here I am, and like kind of a weird 
exploitative way or not that I think it's bad. Like I think people should share all the photos they want of themselves. Like it's to each his own and, you know, like people should feel good about themselves. I think for me, it's, it is more like I see art, like fashion as art and dressing as kind of a meditative practice for myself. And I think it's just something that I always, always found a lot of joy in. And I think I've like made a lot of connections with people, like whether my family or my friends through that. And I think I've just started sharing them over the years because it felt like a way to connect with my friends who didn't necessarily like get to see me all the time or like didn't live in New York. So I think for me, it was like both kind of like, here's like this outfit that I'm into today. And also a way to be like, hey guys, it's me like kind of like a weird check-in in some way and like for some people they probably won't get it and just are kind of like wow this person really likes selfies but I think for me it was just a way to actually connect to other people but without feeling like I always needed to make some big bold statement if that makes sense I feel like I'm reading too much into it too because the first one I saw of you I think this is when I started following you and if I remember <laughs> correctly it was because of Lisa Marie Basile who I love right, and adore. Right. Yes. And so I think she was the gateway drug. And then there was, this, <laughs> there was this selfie. It reminded me of like that view you get of someone when you're looking through the peephole of your door and they're like looking back at you. I felt right. like you were like looking back at me. It was like this kind of extreme selfie. And, and then I noticed you doing a lot of these selfies. And I was like, is there some self-love thing going on here? Like, this is my face. Because you're not actually posing. You're not right. projecting, like, I'm so happy or I'm so sexy. Right. It's just like, here I am. And I see you. And that's you. true, too, for sure, actually. Because I think I always suffered from, like, really bad self-esteem and had been bullied pretty badly when I was growing up. And I think that really affected my self-image for a while. So I think this was also a way for me to kind of reclaim my own self-love and like getting comfortable with my body and like my face. You know, I think like even if you're way past that age, you know, like middle school bullying, I think it sticks with you for a long time. And I think for me, I had to just really like learn how to love myself, which sounds cliche or for a lot of people like who only met me like as an adult I think like I seem really extroverted and confident but that was something that I really had to learn about mm. myself it was definitely not natural and I think you're definitely picking up on that too and I think a lot of people also have pointed out that I never smile in photos and I think you actually get it where it's like I'm not trying to pose like I'm just trying to be like here's me in this moment whereas I feel like smiling unless I'm just smiling because like feel stilted or fake, which is like the opposite of, you know, what I'm trying to do with that. Mm -hmm. I am fully convinced that I have some sort of arrested development going on and that I'm a 40 something year old teenager. I've just identified that about myself. And so I'm totally relating to what you're saying about how those formative years, junior high, high school, and before they can stick with you for a long time. And then you have to work that stuff out as an adult. Oh, totally. And I think like a lot of people don't even realize how much formative years and those experiences really shape who you are and like how you react to things and why, you know, because I feel like for me, a lot of like my current insecurities are still based on a lot of things that happened to me 
at that age. Like even now, like when I meet people, I'm just like, I want them to like me. You know, like that impulse, I think, like stems from the fact that like I felt very lonely as a child just because of a lot of that kind of bullying and feeling like I didn't belong. So I think even now, like I have a lot of amazing friends, but I think, you know, it's like, there's always some weird insecurity thing where you're like, do people actually like me? Or are they just like dealing with me? Or am I just like still the weird kid sitting by myself at like the lunch table? Mm. Um, Which I think like in my rational brain, like I know isn't true, but I definitely think there is like a part of us that still is like, you know, our inner child, which I think is a good thing to retain. But then, you know, there's always kind of like the nuances that come with that, who we were and like what our experiences are. Oh, there's so many gifts in the inner child. It's it's our light and our shadow. And it is so much to pull from as an artist, which I think you do. You know, it's interesting, the kind of artist that you are, which we should tell people about. Is, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I told you I was excited to talk to you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You do something that is really specific. You write about being a survivor, you write about eating disorders, talking about, I think you spoke about eating disorders. I know you're a speaker, a poet, an editor, you do photography. I don't know if you identify officially as a photographer, but you definitely are that and an artist, but it's always with this really look at my insides. You know, we're talking about the surface. You're like, this is my face, but that's actually, it's just so much deeper than that. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's definitely true. And I think it's something that I never even honestly, like consciously set out to do. But I think because I was always kind of like a really shy, introverted kid. And like, I was very acutely aware of being the outsider growing up. I think I was really identified with people who didn't feel like they fit in. And like, why was that? And I think I was kind of always of the mindset like obviously you shouldn't judge a book by its cover and like we never really know what is going on in someone's life I took a lot of those like lessons early on in life which is a good thing and I think because of that though like my art unintentionally I think in a lot of ways became about like uncovering like who we really are and like what has affected us and like why and how because I think like our bodies you know obviously are physical but like we also have like an emotional and a spiritual life and they're all interconnected. So I feel like for me, like studying that relationship with our bodies and the outside world has always been fascinating, I think, mm. to me, because I've always wanted to see the beauty in everything or like understand why our pain really sticks with us for so long, regardless of what it is, like the death of a loved one or like being bullied as a kid or like a breakup or whatever it is but it's always more than the surface level and I think you're definitely picking up on that you have a series there's hashtag survivor it's a photo series and then the survivor interviews and it you address both there's the image of it and what it looks like on the surface and then you dive in with these interviews why survivors right exactly And I think that's the thing, too, that I tried to get across with that photo series, which is definitely something like, you know, it was a very short term project that I was actually shooting and like is incomplete in theory in the sense like we're all survivors of something. And there's never like I could do that project forever. And it's not officially closed by any means, but I've kind of taken a hiatus from it. But 
I think what I was trying to do in a way was just illustrate that we're all surviving something. And like on the surface, we probably look like we're fine. You know what I mean? I think oh, people yeah. have this idea that you're crumbling and that it's going to be obvious that someone's suffering or that you are taking portraits of people with that theme, that you're going to like do this kind of very, I don't know, curated or dramatic kind of pose or background, which I think that's fine. Obviously, that's someone's vision. But I think for me, I kind of had the opposite vision where I was like, I just want someone to stand outside like against a brick wall or like be in a park or whatever they want to do and just be caught in that moment. Because I think, you know, like for me, normalizing it meant a lot. And just seeing people without the sort of frills of a more curated photo shoot per se. But the interview is a way I think for people to also speak for themselves and like be able to give voice to what they wanted to talk about and like how they've grown and like different aspects of their personality. Because I also wanted to focus on like what healing meant for people and like what made them either feel better and how they relate to their family and friends. Because I think a lot of times too, we tend to focus on the actual trauma itself when we don't really think about like the full person after the fact. 100%. Yeah, that's what the photos, especially the way you're describing them now represent. Like this is surviving. It's not the image of the suffering. It's the living of the life after the suffering and or the trauma or whatever it is you feel you've survived. It's also the joy. And this thing you're saying about the wholeness is something that has really come to light for me with the various different social justice movements, people that are saying, hey, you know, you're reducing us down to this one thing and you're like fetishizing our trauma in a way, our pain and making that who we are. So when people see somebody with this disability or this color of skin, that's all they see. (laughs) We're not featuring the joy. We're not featuring like the life being lived and I don't know again am I reading too much into what you're saying because that's what I'm hearing yeah no I think again like you hit the nail on the head and I think like for me it's more just also about like not even trying to have a particular stance and just kind of letting people be as they are and I think like I definitely wanted to take more of like a sort of holistic and positive view into it of like here is the full person like both the pain the joy you know, the shame, everything that comes along with it, all the range like of emotions that we have. Also because like, you know, healing is obviously not a linear journey or progression. And I think a lot of people think like, I'm over this now, therefore it's in the past, which like is true to some extent, you know, like we can heal enough that maybe we don't think about a particular event every day of our lives. But at the same time, you know, truly painful experiences never truly leave you. Like, you know, they change who we are they change how we react to people like how we perceive certain things and I think that's something that I wanted to really portray is like it's complicated (laughs) I think more than anything and I think I was trying to like really not be like here's exactly what being a survivor is like and I didn't want to be like overly positive or overly negative because I think that happens a lot where it's like people are like either sugarcoating it or they do the opposite unintentionally and it becomes just about that one instance and I think you know I tend to see a lot of the grays and nuances and I think 
in my art in particular, this project, like I really didn't want to sway the audience either, which can be kind of difficult in its own way because it's like a lot of times I think we're also told that like we need to have clear themes in our work and not to say I don't think the photo project has clear themes but it's definitely a lot more open-ended than I think a lot of my other projects have been but it's also a really difficult theme and it's not necessarily just my experience of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah I think it's interesting when artists basically just ask questions too, instead of presenting us with a conclusion. Right. And I mean, you, one of the other things that you did that I liked, it was just an abstract illustration series that were just like these looping black ink looking doodles that were then (laughs) colored in, in a really specific way that just spoke to me. I just liked it, but I don't even know why. (laughs) what was that all about (laughs) I think honestly um it's a lot of things in the sense like on one hand it was definitely like a pandemic project in the sense I think (laughs) I was you know as everyone was like in our homes isolated from the world and I think I felt a lot of creative blocks and I wasn't really writing that much at the time and I felt fine with that like I don't feel like I need to constantly produce But I definitely needed like a creative outlet, especially during that time, because like I was pretty much just like working and like maybe like talking to friends on video chat. But, you know, I felt pretty isolated and I felt like I wanted to really challenge myself to just do something different. And I've always been obsessed with one line drawing. So I basically just kept doing these one line drawings over and over again and was like, well, how do I want to color it in? So it's like I would draw them usually by hand and then would color them in using my computer. And now I'm doing both. Like I, I you know, use mixed mediums and like I've been drawing more on my iPad lately. But I think it was just kind of a way for me to like have zero expectations and just be bad at something. So I was like, I don't need these to be like perfect works of art. Like I just want to do a thing and share it with people and just kind of like, if people like it, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. But I think maybe you're hitting on like a momentary feeling with them because I was just usually do them in one sitting and then color them in another sitting. So I think there is something like really raw about them, which, you know, if like that's the kind of art someone likes, I can see how that like might be an interesting thing to engage with. I think it's interesting how you can elicit an emotion with so little movement. That always always fascinates me. I think I'm jealous that you are in a place that I miss. I used to just do artsy things. I did a poetry book. I wrote screenplays. I did all the things, right? Right. And then I built a brand online and that is its own thing. It's, it's, It's good and it's bad, but it's going. You have to stay on the wheel. You can't like get off the wheel. And and then then your work, it actually starts to become a body of work. And you can lose that freedom to just experiment and be like, I want to go through my blue phase. I just want to paint everything blue. Like sometimes I'm just in that mood and I'll see you do these projects. I'm like, oh, I miss doing just a project, you know? Right. And I think I felt the same way, to be honest, because I think for so long, like, you know, I was in this loop of like 
publishing and writing and doing the things. And like, you know, if you're on social media, you feel all the pressure to constantly be doing and producing and like staying relevant. I think I just kind of had this light bulb moment where I was like, I don't want to live like that anymore. Like, Mm. I just want to enjoy myself. I just want to make things that make me feel good. And like, I'll still share them with people. But for me, there's like little pressure into like making it either feel professional or that like it has to be this big project. If it turns into something bigger, that's great. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I think I kind of had a similar feeling. I wanted that like innocence and that purity again. And I think that's also kind of intersects ironically with how we started the conversation about like why I'm not really on social media as much anymore. Because I think for me, I was like, it doesn't really feel, you know, as free, I guess, as I want it to. Like, it kind of felt like after a while, it's like, we have to do these things. And it's like, I never want to feel like that. I just want to feel like, you know, I'm having like an honest exchange, at least as much as possible, like on social media. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, with art too, it's like after a while, I think, especially like I live in New York City, which is the mecca of all of these different things I think there's a pressure to feel like you're doing something all the time and I think like I was just like that's just such an unhealthy attitude and it's a very pro-capitalist attitude and I I think I have a capitalist question how do you make this how do you make this happen financially because you live (laughs) in a very I live in a very expensive place I live in Los Angeles and I see that you live in in Brooklyn New York which is now an expensive place as well and So do you depend on, I'm not going to ask you specifics, but do you depend on your art Mm. to pay your bills or is your art free of that? It's it's pretty free of that. I mean, I I have like a corporate nine to five. You do? Okay. I do. Yeah. That's important to know. I guess I just felt weird asking. No, no, that's totally fine. And it's like a really fair question. And to be honest, I wish more people were transparent about stuff like that, because I do often feel like writers and artists are like, just make the time, make it happen, and it'll happen. And I don't really think that's true or fair to say, because like time is valuable. Not everyone's time is used the same way. Like someone who doesn't have to have a full-time job and isn't a caretaker obviously has a lot more free time and ownership over their time versus someone who's working full-time, has kids, you know, or like even working full-time without kids. Like, you know, it's, there's so many different situations, but I really kind of do dislike when people like sugarcoat Mm -hmm. (laughs) things like that. Cause it's like, I don't mind having a day job. I actually really like having a day job and like being busy and being part of like the world that's not necessarily like the art space for me so like I do like having that but it does limit obviously like the time that we Mm. spend on art and in some way it's freeing too because I don't feel like I need to make art to make money like I'm just making it for myself so like while I could be like frustrated at the fact that I have to have a job I think I actually feel the opposite where I feel like at least like when in my free time I'm just doing what I want. I don't feel like I have to write or make art a certain way to make money. Yes. I really want people to hear what you're saying because my job uses up my creativity. That's what I put my creativity behind where as 
in the past, I used that creativity to do like a poetry book or to do a screenplay or whatever. I could pour all that into it. And now that creative time goes into this business, but it still ends up feeling like a job to some degree and it takes up some space. So I just wanted to clearly present there are options. Yes. <laughs> you, you can be an online brand or personality or you can get the job. There's benefits to both. And right, exactly. Yeah. I love what Elizabeth Gilbert says in Big Magic about how she never asked her art to support her. She was like, from day one, I'm going to support us both. Don't you worry about it. I'll do whatever job I have to do so you can remain as you are. And I thought, oh, right. that, that's so beautiful. I think so, too. And I think there's also something great to be said of the fact that, like, work is work. You know what I mean? Like, how we make money, on one hand, has really nothing to do with who we are or, like, our value by any means. Like, work is the way for us to support ourselves. And obviously if people can do that with what they love, more power to you, of course. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also like no shame in doing any kind of work that pays our bills and also having no expectations for our art, you know? And I think everyone has a different relationship to it. So it's like, obviously I wouldn't want to ascribe my beliefs on anyone else, but I always felt kind of similar to that. Like I never expected to make money for my art. Like I always kind of, assumed I would just have to have like some kind of job and like skill set outside of that I think for me it always gives me perspective like I don't want to feel like I'm living in a bubble yeah oh yeah that must inform your work and you must be known as your place of work as a very snappy dresser this is (laughs) this is probably why we're getting those good selfies because you're getting ready for the day it's true that's actually true and it is kind of funny like I'm friends with a former boss of mine who I, I'm at, I've been at my current job for a few years and I had a boss who had left a few years ago and we remained friends, but it's kind of interesting because a few months ago she said that she missed my outfits. Um, and it actually really touched me because it's like, it kind of does show though, like little interactions like that throughout the day, like really actually mean a lot to people. And it's true. Like, with like a lot of people in my office, like I look forward to certain things, you know what I mean? Like even now, like I'm working remotely, you kind of have a cadence with people, even if it's just online. And I think having that experience, like being in an office, like pre-pandemic, there was kind of an interesting dynamic where it's like, I was like, what am I going to wear for work today and I mean I still do that I still get dressed up like every day just because like that's how I am but yeah no it is it is kind of funny like I'm definitely the person in the office where like people are just like what's going on or they're like just mesmerized by like (laughs) the outfit and I can't obviously like I can't say everyone likes it but I think people are just kind of at least amused probably by it your name is Joanna I have this strange relationship with your Twitter account and I'm realizing just in talking to you you're just reminding me of so many things I miss that I I feel like it's a call to bring more of that into my life because 10 million years ago I worked at Warner Brothers but I worked on the writer's side of the building and you know where people were just up in their heads and I would come in every day with the crazy new outfit I never wanted to repeat my outfit so there were safety pins involved and weird bits of junk 
And people from the stage that were working in the more creative side, the art department would swing by my office to see what I was wearing that I day. Love that. And I took such pride in it. I would like start exaggerating and dressing for them. And it was, I think it was fun for everyone, even the people that were making fun of me. It was a good time. <laughs> well, I think that it's like, it does kind of elicit a sense of community. You know what I mean? Like we were so connected to each other, you know, and I think to not realize and foster that we're really missing out whether it's like happening online or in person and I think obviously the pandemic really I think stressed that even more like we need each other and I think having those interactions like they help connect us to other people but they also kind of help build our identity and like our confidence you know what I mean because like Mm -hmm. that kind of experience for you like all of a sudden you became like the well-dressed or quirky person in the office, (laughs) you know, so for you, like it was kind of an identity builder, but also probably a confidence builder because you're like, oh, wow, like people are interested in like what I'm doing. And like confidence is obviously not a bad thing. Like, I think a lot of people might be like, whatever, you sound full of yourself, but like, we're allowed to love ourselves. Like we're allowed to feel good about how we look and I think that's the thing too it's like I always like am afraid of like people thinking I'm vain for liking outfits but like at the same time if we don't love ourselves who is and why not use every day to the best of our abilities and I think for me at least and you seem similar like picking an outfit is like an easy way to kind of like kickstart a positive feeling for the day because I know when I'm not like getting dressed and I'm just you know, don't really put effort in. Like I definitely feel like worse. Yeah. I know how, I know how to feel invisible. And I also have like different costumes. I feel like just from observing myself, I just noticed like for certain people, they get a certain Joanna. These people get a different one. Right. (laughs) And it's really like a protection thing. Like if I'm going home to visit my family, I'm a little more anxious about it. I have to look a certain way. And I've, I've been unpacking that. Like, what if I don't look that way? What will happen? I mean, <laughs> the whole family sense. will fall apart. I don't right. know. <laughs> no, it makes total sense. Cause like on one hand, we are different people with, we put different versions of ourselves, like with different people and like, you know, different friends or different family will bring out different parts of us. So on one hand, that makes sense. And I think another hand, obviously in certain work or family situations, like you have to be a different version of yourself. It's armor. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, like, even at my job, now I'm pretty comfortable and, like, dress mostly how I want. But, like, especially when I started, like, I dressed definitely a lot more toned down, like, covered my tattoos. You know, it was still me, but it was a different version of me. And, like, while that's kind of obviously been relaxed over the years, just because, like, you know, that naturally happens, I'm still the, like quote-unquote work Joanna version whereas like if I'm going to like a music event or like a poetry reading like then I'm definitely going to be like that version you know of myself and I think it's code switching a little bit and I think especially for anyone who has had uncomfortable interactions which I mean we all have but like for people who have had particularly negative ones I think we unintentionally do that of course mm-hmm. yeah I mean, my parents didn't know I had tattoos for long oh time. my god that's amazing you know so that was kind of funny because I come from a pretty conservative family where like tattoos were like not something you did 
So, I mean, like, even after my parents knew I had tattoos, for a long time, I would just, like, wear sleeves around them because I felt like I just needed to be, like, respectful. I don't do that anymore, but, like, it took a long time for me to go sleeveless with them. Oh, you just opened up a whole can of worms. I (laughs) I come from a very conservative family. So, hearing you say that, I just want to be like, well why then are you putting yourself out there like you do and getting the tattoos and writing writing all this stuff and creating this art that has to be involved in it somehow? Yeah, it's so complicated. (laughs) And I I love it. I've always had like a very, I don't want to say weird relationship with it, but I think, you know, probably growing up so shy and like sheltered in like that kind of religious conservative way, I think led me to basically rebel against all of it so in some way it's like not surprising probably that I am the way that I am but I think as I've gotten older I've definitely kind of like tried to find the balance of how can I make art make my statements but also still be respectful or maybe not like as flashy I don't want to say bold because I I mean I don't think being bold is obviously a bad thing but I think there's definitely certain things that I did while I was younger that I probably wouldn't do Oh my God, yes. Most of the things that I've made that make me cringe now were coming from this kind of like in your face kind of place. (laughs) Right. No, I feel exactly the same way. And I think like we probably had to go through that phase to really be comfortable with ourselves. But I also think it's okay to be like, I don't need to do that anymore. Or like, that's not really who I am anymore. Oh, do you have anything? I have something in one project in particular that bugs me because I know it's socially unacceptable now. At the time, I think people weren't talking about this, but now I look at it, I'm like, I have to remove that from the face of this planet because I did this thing that is offensive. Do you have any of that in your, how many books have you published now? Books of poetry? I think I have five books now I love how I don't even know I'm just well there's a lot of projects that you've done so I I mean a lot yeah no there there are definitely a lot it's like also like I have chapbooks and yes like I edited that anthology so it's like it depends on like what we're also counting but I know I definitely have I'm going on my a love story is going to be like my fifth full-length book but then I guess I have like two chapbooks in that anthology and I illustrated a chapbook and I'm going to illustrate another one full-length collection that will come out actually later this year by Fox Henry Frazier. But so okay. that's why I'm like, I don't even know how many things, but yeah, there's definitely tons of things that I'm like, why did I do that? Or like, if I made it today, it'd be like a lot different. Yeah. I mean, even <laughs> looking at like photos of myself from a few years ago, I'm like, why? I mean, I pretty much like am the kind of person who's like mortified by everything I've done uh, yes. <laughs> after a certain point. <laughs> well, what is the protocol for this? Cause I, I've been teetering on curate all the content or just leave it up as that's where I was back then. Right. And I think it's hard. I think it's contextual, honestly. Like I think some of it is like, obviously if it's like offensive or could be seen, you know, like as insensitive or something, I'd probably like Get rid take of that it shit. down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, or yeah. like, release a new edition of whatever it is but yeah I know it's difficult because like obviously you want to be true to who you have like grown into being but like we obviously don't ever want to be insensitive it's a difficult thing I mean being an artist is a really complicated yeah it really is I mean being human is really complicated and like no one is perfect and everyone makes mistakes 
And I think it's just about realizing how to not make mistakes anymore. And I think that's, for me, the most important thing is like, if we're so obsessed with like not making any mistakes, I feel like we're missing the point. And this isn't me excusing anyone's like bad behavior or like missteps, but I think I'm more about figuring out how can we as like individuals and collectively like move forward and be better rather than shaming ourselves for having made mistakes or, you know, for being a different person in the past. Yeah. Well, then this leads me to a question I have kind of keeping on this thing. You look very much like a she to me, a very feminine she, but in the bio on your website, you identify as they, which is something, that is something that throws me for a loop because, you know, I grew up when they was plural. So first of all, there's the nerd in my brain that's like, that means plural. So what are we saying? And then And how do we know when somebody identifies that way before we've met them? I'm afraid of getting it wrong. It puts me on edge. Like, what if I slip up or I say she? Is that offensive? And it's very complicated and probably not that original at all to have these thoughts. So I just thought I should ask you, like, why they? And then what, when it comes to referring to you specifically, Right. Would you like me or anyone else listening to do with that information? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I think that's like an honest question. And I think a lot of people are afraid to maybe have these conversations up front because like people don't want to be wrong. And like, I'm personally, obviously, I can't speak for anyone else. I'm personally only offended when I know someone's like being purposefully offensive or just an asshole basically. (laughs) Um, But like, if I know someone just is like, honestly not sure or just isn't aware, then like, I'm never going to be offended. I've only ever been offended if it's like, I know it's like a personal dig that someone's making. It's kind of interesting too, because I deal with a lot of this stuff at work in terms of, because I work in marketing and we actually recently were talking about like, what do you do with pronouns? Like when you are in the workplace with people and you don't really know what their preferences are and how they identify. And I think for me, like it just, I never make assumptions. So when I meet someone or I'm writing about something and I don't actually like know how someone's identifying, I usually just use their first name. So if I can, like I try not to use pronouns at all because I feel like that way you're not making an assumption. And I usually try if I have to use a pronoun, like for some reason, like just grammatically, it's not working. I do just default to they because I'd rather someone just have that, you know what I mean? Rather than assuming. Exactly. And also just asking. I mean, I think the thing is, if you're not in a position where you can ask, using a first name is the best option and then using they as a pronoun. But I think obviously if you're in the position where you can ask someone, like I just ask and it might feel awkward in the moment, but I also feel like the more people do that, the more we normalize that like asking is a totally valid, normal thing to do. Right. And especially like if we meet someone for the first time and we're like, you know, asking their name and stuff like that, I feel like it could be something like as simple as like, what's your nickname? Like what's your pronoun? you know, what makes us comfortable. And I think it's more like, because it's still so new for a lot of people. Like, I think a lot of people just feel awkward about it. Whereas I think it's just like, the more we like normalize it, the easier it will be for everyone. And I think especially for people who are 
consider themselves non-binary, for instance, I think it's hard to feel like you can bring it up in conversation. So I think a lot of times, like, people don't really know, like, when to bring it up, whether, like, with friends or at the workplace. Yeah, or, even after, after I have the information, I feel like a fake. I feel like an imposter right. because it's unnatural. And so I think what you're saying is that it will become natural over time. And some of us, like I'm in Gen X, I think some of the older generations, we're just going to, we're just going to have to lag behind a little. And <laughs> if you're a kind person and if you care about other people, you'll do your best to catch up and it's going to feel awkward. Right. And I think that's the thing is that like missteps and mistakes happen. And I think at least though I take the stance of I'm going to allow everyone to make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. Like I've accidentally like used the wrong pronouns for people. And like, I felt mortified, you know, obviously, Um, but it happens. And I think just as long as we take accountability and apologize and like realize when we've done it, that's the best that we can do. And I think just we need to allow ourselves to make honest mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think the only thing when it's like really shitty is obviously if someone's like purposely not using the pronouns that someone wants, like that's a whole different ballpark. Um, I think there's a lot of anger around that. Right. And people hate change, which is so, I mean, we know this, we've seen this obviously the past like several years, obviously people hate change. People hate what they don't understand. And we, as of society, our language is so limited. And I think, you know, I can only obviously speak of my own experiences and like the people that I've been around. But I think a lot of times two people get very comfortable talking about things a certain way. And like, then they kind of just, not to generalize, but I think a lot of people feel like they don't want to feel dumb. So I think people just end up like wanting to be like, well, I learned this already, or I know how to use language or, or this is my understanding of the world, or this is what I was taught. And I think people in a weird way, double down, even when it's not something they actually feel that strongly about, but it's like, for some reason, like we have this (laughs) culture of like, we don't ever want to admit we're wrong. And like, I get it. Like, I I hate to say, like, I get defensive in arguments and like, I catch myself doing that sometimes. And I'm like, why am I like this? And I think it's just like, (laughs) it's human. It's it's totally human. Beyond cultural, I think it's human. I do think some deep part of us is threatened by being wrong. I, I think it's just human. No, I think so too. And I think we do live in a society where it's like, you know, obviously our media and like, you know, the presidency that we had for so long, you know what I mean? Like it doubled down on this human tendency that we have in a way that it's like become a virtue Mm. in a way where it's the opposite. Like it's something that like, we don't have to hate ourselves for, but we should check ourselves. And yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting too, because like speaking of it, I think a lot of times, you know, with like say gender identity or sexual identity, I think it is like also something that we've been structured to think in the sense that I think for a lot of people, like we grew up thinking, okay, there is this binary, like only male, only female, because that's what like we were taught for so long, at least in like mainstream culture. And I think now that more people are starting to realize this isn't actually true. Like there isn't a binary, like we don't have to identify a certain way or that like we can be ourselves and like be attracted to whoever we are. But I think, you know, these cultural norms that we've kind of 
been living under, like, especially in like, you know, the very 1950s-esque white suburban fence. You know I was I mean? raised like that in the 80s. We got, right. somehow my family did the 50s and the 80s. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like this weird, you know, like after World War II, there was like this really interesting cultural shift where like everyone was obsessed with these norms and everyone was always obsessed with norms like obviously throughout history I'm not trying to act and like the then world come magically the changed art, the artists are the irritants and the culture shifters right. like there's always been these rules you know in all of our different societies that we've had like throughout history but I think there has been this really interesting modern shift that happened with a lot of her parents and grandparents even, depending on like obviously how old people's parents are. Like my parents are boomers. So they grew up in the fifties and I just see it with them where it's like, there was like advertising was real. You know what I mean? Like, like that was like the fifties and the sixties was like peak advertising in a lot of ways in terms of like, you know, TV and phones and like all of the modern technological advances that we're used to at this point. And I think once, like, we became more and more connected, whether with TV or, like, cell phones and obviously tablets now, I think the more a lot of these weird cultural ideas, oh like, my God, yes. standards become what we consider normal. You know what I mean? And I think it's with gender the, and sexuality, that was a huge thing. You were supposed to just, like, you know, go to college and get married and live this like American dream. And that was like a whole thing for a lot of different generations, like boomers and on. And I think finally that's cracked and people are exploring their real selves and don't feel like they have to ascribe to that. But like now we have a whole other crop of things probably coming up because, you know, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, I'm sure there's other weird societal norms that we don't even realize we're like enacting at this point. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we are. You just have to accept that. But I think you really hit the nail on the head with what you were saying. Basically, the internet created this kind of democracy of ideas. And, And so instead of having this norm imposed on us, now everybody has a voice and... Maybe that dream is for some people, but it's not for all of us. So now we're getting all of this variety and it's getting very, very weird because people are weird and people are complicated and all of that is being included now. All of our layers and nuances are part of the story that were a new story. Right, exactly. And it's also like, you know, going back to to gender, it's like, what is gender anyway? You know what I mean? A lot of it is like societal constructs that we've kind of taught ourselves because I think even just like what is being a man or a woman or someone who's non-binary or gender non-conforming I think a lot of people have these ideas about what that means but I think if anything like what does it even mean anyway you know like when you take away the expectations that we've been taught I think it's really fascinating and for me it's definitely been a journey I mean I didn't quote-unquote come out until like my mid- 20s because I think you know for so long I just kind of figured I had to force myself into a mold yeah and I know it can be confusing for people because I am like super femme in my presentation and I think for me it's more just like whatever I feel like my aesthetic is is like what I kind of lean into and I think I've always been very much like a I love makeup and dresses and doing my hair but I feel like that's something that could be said of anyone. It's so great to represent that. 
Right. Because it's saying these are different things. They're both aspects of who you are as a being. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it further creates our understanding of nuance and the unique ways that people identify and right. and you and you get to self-identify in however way you please. Exactly. And like I've looked a lot different like in the past. You know what I mean? Like I've definitely gone through different versions of how I present myself and I think that's also actually helped me realize how I look. It has nothing to do with how I feel or who I'm with or how I identify and I think it's like I've always at least I you know for me felt like neither male or female I've always felt like I was in some kind of in between neither space and both at the same time I think is the best way yeah that's the best way that I can describe it and like I've never felt like I really needed to fully have a perfect explanation for it but I felt like that just always felt like me it's just like I'm kind of somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. which is kind of freeing because I'm just like whatever I'm just me you know yeah this was a fascinating conversation and we really didn't talk about a love story we have to talk about a love story please tell us what (laughs) tell us what it is yeah so a love story is my forthcoming poetry book that's coming out in less than a month now um, July July 13th. 13th very exciting So it's basically a poetry book that's like a very deeply inspired by Twin Peaks, but also just in general, kind of like the serial killer genre. Definitely Medea was a huge influence to it as well. And like Paradise Lost, although Paradise Lost, I feel like influences everything I've ever Mm. done at this point. And just like a lot of that sort of obsession, like with serial killers I think in the past few years like really influenced me so I basically just started writing this book kind of envisioning like what particularly like Killer Bob if Killer Bob was kind of like a queer character in a small town in the U.S. and then kind of imagined and like then once I started writing the poems like it became beyond that trope and beyond that inspiration and I was just kind of like well what would it be like to write persona poems from the standpoint like of a murderer or serial killer what we consider a monster which is why I then just named the character the killer because I really just wanted it to be kind of like a faceless entity to some point I think to really just explore like what that is because I think a lot of times like I wasn't necessarily trying to write the character in a sympathetic way but I was really just trying to get into the mindset of it and like what it feels to feel like outside of society if that makes sense I guess I should also add that I wrote it during my divorce so I think there was a lot of channeling of angry emotions and like rejected feelings and loneliness and isolation oh my god I totally am feeling I wrote a song years ago it was when George Bush was the president and it was called assassination and it was told from the perspective of somebody who might assassinate the president I just wanted to get into that mindset of like what are they angry about that would take them all the way to that point and luckily (laughs) we didn't put it out there because who knows what the FBI would make of that but um, right exactly (laughs) but I totally get 
the desire to explore that. That's something that method actors will go in and explore, you know, like we all have a killer instinct, even if it's just killing like 300 ants on your patio. Right. You know, and the glee you take at it, like die, motherfuckers, die. Oh, totally. And I think what for is someone, that? well, it's like a power thing too, you know, like we're always, like there's always kind of a power dynamic that we're dealing with. And I think for me, especially as someone who, you know, experienced sexual assault and domestic issues in relationships I think I wanted to explore that from the opposite standpoint of what I usually do because usually I've always explored it from my own experiences and I think in this way I wanted to just like flip the switch a little bit and I think like initially having Twin Peaks as like the springboard for it and other sort of like tv shows like Mindhunter was like a big one for me at the time I think having that as a springboard like really helped me write through that character and like really think about like what it feels I don't want to say what it feels like to be in that persona so much as I wanted to not just have the simple sort of like survivor narrative anymore or like especially as a queer person exploring queer identity but in a way where it's not seen as a typical narrative of like redemption per se like what would it look like for someone who doesn't get redemption or doesn't get closure or doesn't get love you know what I mean and I think we shy away from that because we want these narratives to be positive which I understand why like we need them you know like we need queer love stories but I think for me I was like that's not what I need to do right now wow that's a dangerous project It is, you know, because like I obviously would never want anyone to think I was like glamorizing it by any means. And I think like because a lot of it was very Twin Peaks inspired, there was also like a clear narrative that I was inspired by. So I think that like definitely helps contextualize it and ground it. But it's definitely a project that like, you know, takes risks and isn't necessarily for everyone. I do think like I definitely make it clear, though, that like the actions of the killer are like awful and terrible you know, fuck that noise. Like none of that is acceptable. And I think like that was what I did want to ultimately get across is like, these people are human in the sense, like when we look at serial killers or people who do terrible things as inhuman, it actually makes it less scary because we're not actually looking at them as full beings anymore. Like they just become one dimensional. Whereas I think I actually wanted to explore how scary it is that humans are capable of these terrible things and it's oh, yeah. an awful thing you know what I mean it's it's really awful and I think I just like if anything it's like the opposite of romanticizing it I guess was my end goal of being like this is fucking scary shit basically it is um, I mean this is yeah. some shadowy shit because we contain yeah. we contain all things within us yes we, and I think that's the scariest part of it like what part of you can relate is each poem part of like a linear narrative or are they just these little snapshots on this theme? I would say they're snapshots. It's kind of a non-linear narrative where I think once you finish the collection, you kind of get this like narrative and overarching story of like what happens to this character, like from childhood to adulthood. So I think you'll get the kind of full story by the end, but it's definitely told in a non-linear way, which is often how I write in general. Like I've always been kind of more of a non-linear storyteller, I think because I've always like been fascinated by like memories and vignettes and just kind of focusing on 
those tones rather than necessarily trying to craft like a conventional storyline. And I think in this case too, I really wanted to illustrate just how terrible violence is and like how that inflicts pain on other people and how people inflict their own pain on others, obviously, which is unacceptable, but it's something that I think for me as a survivor, I needed to explore because I think it is also very easy to kind of have only the lens that you have, if that makes sense. And I think I always am someone that like wants to sort of broaden the way that I understand something. Yeah. And it's called a love story. Yes. (laughs) Very ironic as a title. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel the need to get out ahead of that? Or you're like, here's the title. Have fun. I kind of am the person that's always just like, here's the thing I did. (laughs) And like, I usually on one hand, like I am explaining it obviously to you now and I'm happy to. On the other hand, I usually kind of just like let things fall and allow people to kind of form their own opinions. I did like at the end of the book have like a kind of notes section where like I sort of explained some of this just to, I think, contextualize it for people in terms of what I was trying to do without giving them too much. And I did it at the end of the book. So it wasn't like a forward that people read before Mm -hmm. because I definitely don't want to influence what people think. Like I want people to come to their own conclusions and like, hopefully obviously the poems are written in a way where people can both relate to the pain, but also not excuse, you know, the behavior of the killer. But yeah, it's a complicated project. You have respect for your readers. You're expecting them I do. to show up like grown-ups. Yeah, they'll be smart. You know, and I think that's the thing. It's like I'm an artist making art for people who like art. You know what I mean? And I yeah. feel like for me, like if someone just somehow picked up the book and they had no experience with it, they could hate it and that's fine. I guess I'm I'm also not really trying to make people like what I do. I would never want to offend people in a way that would be like detrimental. Well, like I'm also okay if someone's just like, whatever, I didn't get anything out of this. This didn't speak to me. And that's fine. Mm. You are bold. Thank you. I'm so inspired. How do people find you? I'm going to link to all the things, but for people who are listening on the go, Mm. how do they find you? My website is probably the best way to find me. It's just my name, joannavalente.com. And my Instagram is also just my name, yeah, <laughs> Joanna and you, C. Valente. So it's it's pretty easy, I think, to find me. And I think those are, my Instagram is definitely like the most active way to like keep in touch with me. Yeah. Because um, I, I tend to update it somewhat da- like daily or weekly just with like art or photos. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to link to all the things anyway. I'm definitely going to link to your book. And I always end with the same question. And you can answer just with whatever comes top to mind. It doesn't have to be the end all be all. But what is one tip you have for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams? Mm, That's such a good question. And I also like kind of want to listen to everybody's answers because I'm like, (laughs) I need some tips. Um, (laughs) I mean, I guess I would just say like trying to be like, making small choices every day to foster contentment and happiness and calmness. I mean, I think that's kind of the only thing we can do, you know, is like 
Like for me, it's like lighting incense, putting on music while I'm working and doing little things like that, like having a snack that I really like. I know it sounds super basic, but like I'm a big believer in like the small choices that we make throughout the day really add up in the end. And it's like curating a daily environment that makes you feel good and makes you feel seen, I feel like is the best way to live because ultimately like you'll attract people who value you and like-minded people who are on your wavelength. And like, I kind of feel like once you have that, you kind of have it all. You know what I mean? Whether or not you get the fancy job or like the, the book deal or the art show, like if you feel seen and supported and you are authentic with yourself, that to me is success. That is a gorgeous answer. I love Thank it. you. So that was awesome. This interview was recorded earlier this summer, which means a love story. Joanna's book about a serial killer. It's out now. You can buy it in a bookstore near you, order it online, and and leave a nice review. Spread the word on social media. That is how artists survive and thrive these days. It is no small thing to shout out an artist you love on social media. You're actually really helping them out. So whether it's Joanna Valente or some other author you love or poet or illustrator, shout them out. It's a great thing to do. And Shadow Love Summer Camp is still totally happening. I am still offering the 50% off discount for the Shadow Love Audio Journey. So you get 50% off when you put the word groovy, all lowercase, put the word groovy in at checkout and it will roll 50% off the price. If you're feeling the call to do some shadow work right now, we are officially in the autumn transition. Autumn is coming up soon, my friends. I know for so many of us, it's our favorite time of year. (laughs) I usually spend my autumn transition counting down to autumn. I'm not going to lie. I have to also give a shout out to the weather gods because summer has been exceptionally mild this year so far in Los Angeles, knock on wood. I'm loving it. So no complaints yet, but I'm still looking forward to fall. And if you're one of those witchy people who loves to do your shadow work in the fall, this is an awesome way to prepare because it's 50% off. So there will be a link in the show notes. I'm Joanna DeVoe on Gum Road. If you find me over there, you can pick it up over there. But don't forget to put the word groovy in at checkout and you'll get a nice discount. So I hope, I hope, I hope the hot, hot heat is treating you well so far. And until we meet again. And it will be soon, I should say. I have quite a few episodes coming out in a short period of time. So until we meet again, much love to you. Peace.